You're listening to the Fresh Takes on Tech podcast, a show from the International Fresh Produce Association. This is a show for people interested in the intersection between technology and the produce and floral industries. Every week, we explore the problems, solutions, people, and ideas that are shaping the industry. If you are interested in the innovations that create change, this is the place for you. Let's dive in. Hello, this is Bonnie Estes, your host of Fresh Takes on Tech. This episode kicks off a new season that I'm doing where I dig into producer and consumer views about the food we eat. What do we get when we buy organic? What is regenerative food production? How is it different? How is the produce grown in an indoor farm different than outdoor? These are questions I ask myself as a consumer and as a participant in the produce industry. If I'm confused, I see why my friends outside of the industry may not understand what they're buying. Stick with me through this season as we talk to experts in organic, regenerative, and indoor farming to understand what it all means. In today's episode, I get to talk to Dr. Kathleen Merrigan, an expert in food and agriculture. She is the director of the Sweetie Center for Sustainable Food Systems at Arizona State University and the former deputy secretary of USDA. Let's start with organic. Kathleen, since you are known for authoring the law establishing national standards for organic food, can you explain to us what organic means? It depends on how long you have for me. (laughs) People want a very short, you know, one sentence description of what organic is. And I think that's challenged the industry over the many years I've been engaged with it because it's a complex set of rules, systems, approaches that you can't really do an elevator speech on. So (laughs) organic is many things. A lot of people focus on what it's not. It doesn't allow this, that, and the other thing. No, for the most part, no synthetic um, pesticides, fertilizers, no hormones, no antibiotics, no ionizing radiation, no sewage sludge. The, the things that are absence claims, I suppose. And I know that Gary Hirschberg from Stonyfield did a big project under the organization Organic Voices that I highly recommend to people, trying to figure out how to have a message about organic shrunk into the nutshell that you, Vani, want. And the thing that really resonated with people that everyone agreed on, and these are industry, was the focus on no pesticides. That's what really hits consumers. But since I'm talking to people in the produce industry, you know, I want to talk about what the organic attributes are that don't get enough headline time, like crop rotation being the cornerstone of organic production, requirements around buffers if you're abutting a stream, a need to shepherd biodiversity if you're in animal agriculture. There are rules about access to pasture for ruminants, housing for all different kinds of livestock. People in the produce industry are probably familiar with rules around raw manure use. Uh, It's interesting about raw manure use. Let me just focus on that for a minute. In the 1990 law, there wasn't a specific mandate about manure use, but in the rulemaking that we put forward and became the rule of the land in 2002, 
there was a rule on raw manure use, and it is this. If the edible portion of the crop touches the ground, then you have to have 120 days from the last use of that manure to when a crop is harvested. If the edible portion of the crop doesn't come in contact with the soil, then it can be reduced to 90 days. Now, if you're from New England, where I'm from, they're very short growing seasons. So that doesn't give you a lot of opportunity to use raw manure. And in reality, most organic farmers are using composting. But in the recently issued rule for the Food Safety Modernization Act on manure use, the FDA kicked the can down the road. They said it's going to take us another year, 10 years maybe, to figure out a standard for raw manure. But in the meantime, producers would be prudent, that was their word, prudent, to follow the national organic standard on this issue. So again, it's a complex system. Organic is a lot of do-nots and a lot of do's. So you talked about the standards changing and some of the rules changing. So how have the standards changed over the years and and what's the mechanism for those standards to change? So the final rule that became the law of the land was 2002. And over time, the rules have changed, but not as much as the industry would like. There's a citizen advisory board called the National Organic Standards Board. I actually served for five years on it as an environmental representative. They make recommendations to the Secretary of Agriculture about standards, and they have specific statutory obligations to make recommendations around material use in organic production and processing. There have been a lot of recommendations that have just sat on the shelf waiting for USDA action. If people are interested in what those are, the Organic Trade Association has them very prominent on their website, and they're arguing for all of those rules to see the light of day. We are in the process of pushing forward some legislation, people call it the Chow Act, to try to have some more expedited rulemaking for the National Organic Program. But over time, there have been some significant rules. When I was Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, we issued the final rule on pasture requirements for ruminants. So you see those dairy cows, they have to be out there eating grass for a certain number of days every year. That, I think, contributes to the coming together of crop and livestock agriculture, nutrient recycling, And there's quite a bit of science out there that it's actually beneficial in terms of climate change. So there are rules that have come out over the years that have added burden to organic uh, growers and farmers and ranchers in terms of what they have to do. But again, not as many rules as the industry would like. That's the irony here. The organic industry is begging to be regulated. They want these tough rules because they know their consumers want them to follow these tough rules. And philosophically, many of them feel very strongly that they're stewards of the earth and these are the right things to do. So if the board makes a recommendation, it's just a recommendation. They don't, the board doesn't have, uh, the Organic Standards Board doesn't have the 
they can't change the standards. The USDA has to react to that. Is that right? So they're just recommendations? They're just recommendations. So like a lot of USDA has, you know, I don't know how many advisory boards these days. When I was the administrator of the Agricultural Marketing Service in the last couple of years of the Clinton administration, I think there were over 100 advisory boards just in that agency alone. So there are a lot of these federal advisory boards. So say the National Organic Standards Board tomorrow met and they made a recommendation that you could only harvest organic crops on every Wednesday. I mean, just a ridiculous rule, right? But they can't enact that. That has to go to the secretary. The secretary decides whether to advance that idea through federal rulemaking. The one area where the National Organic Standards Board differs from other advisory boards is that in the Organic Foods Production Act of 1990 that set up this whole system, the National Organic Standards Board was given special authority over the national list. The national list is a list of synthetics that are allowed in organic and naturals that are not. So rule of thumb, right? When you think about organic, it's no synthetics, you use naturals. But there are exceptions on both sides. I always like to use the example of insect. This may be awkward for listeners to hear, but basically we're not squeezing the bottom sides of insects to produce the amount of pheromone that we want for mating disruption. We're producing a synthetic analog in the laboratory. That is something that's an acceptable synthetic in organic production. On the natural side, there are things that we know that are good environmentally. Arsenic, for example. Back in the olden days, farmers did use arsenic as a pesticide, which is very persistent in soil and very toxic, and we don't want that. And so that's a natural that's prohibited. So the way the law works is the National Organic Standards Board has the ability to recommend exceptions to the synthetic rule to the secretary. The secretary can decide to put that through rulemaking, get public comment, and decide ultimately whether to add that synthetic on the national list. But the, sec the secretary cannot add something that hasn't first been recommended by the National Organic Standards Board. The reason for that is that even though organic farmers wanted to be regulated and they came to Congress asking for a national law, came knocking on my door, Kathleen, help us out, Senator Leahy, help us out, they did not have a very good history of success with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It was asking the, you know, it was Fox guarding the hen house in their mind. So there were ways that we drafted the law that kept some power in the industry itself in establishing those standards because people were very worried that USDA would water them down. Interesting. So I, a lot of what I cover is new technologies. That's my role at IFPA and is just looking at new technologies bringing into the industry. And a lot of people are focusing on mitigation to climate change and a, a lot of other sustainable types of issues. So when you look at how difficult it is, like you're talking about synthetic pheromones, to bring in new technology, is that is that a danger to organics and that is organics going to get left behind because they can't adopt new technologies? How do you how do you look at bringing new technology in? 
Well, it depends. I mean, certainly farmers are innovating all the time in their operations. And I always say all farmers should be thankful for the organic farmers because they've sort of set themselves up for the most difficult job. We're not going to use inputs for the most part. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. And so they've had to be very creative research pioneers. And it has benefited all of American agriculture. I always use the example of rotational grazing that was really pioneered by the organic industry and then adopted um, by conventional producers as well. So organic farmers are adopting new technologies and new ways of doing things. It Not everything that you do in an organic operation is necessarily scrutinized and comes under the regulations. So what's an example of something like that? I could be a rancher and I'm using drones now to herd my cattle, to understand where my fences may be down that I need to go and fix instead of spending eight hours a day horseback riding. Um, So there are definitely ways technology is being deployed in the organic sector as well as across across the landscape. Appeal Biosciences is a firm that I'm really fond of. I love their CEO, James Rogers. They've developed a biofilm that goes on fruit to retard the ripening. And it's a it's a pretty exciting innovation that can help with reducing food waste. Well, that is all fine for organic growers to use. And so if you're buying an organic avocado in the supermarket, it very well may have the appeal biofilm on it so that you can, you know, have it, buy it today and have guacamole on the weekend. Did that have to get approved or is it just under some definition so that it didn't have to get specially approved? It didn't have to get specially approved. There's also an organization that works hand-in-glove with USDA, the Organic Materials Review Institute, and they oftentimes look at new innovations and give it the thumbs up or thumbs down. And that also becomes an important component for what the national organic standards may do. Going in a slightly different direction on another technology is breeding technologies. And I totally understand why genetically modified seeds and crops are not under the organic label. But I'm wondering about with gene editing and some of the newer technologies, do you think that that there's a possibility that the organic standards will ever accept that? Hard to say. I wrote the law as you started the top of our talk. And the law actually doesn't have a prohibition on biotechnology. When USDA put out their first proposed rule, people went crazy um, because it said we should have biotech. And it was a record-breaking number of letters that USDA received in response to that proposed rule. It was the second largest number of letters to a rulemaking, the first still maybe historically being about a tobacco rule. And they brought me in to AMS to rewrite the rule. We came up with a definition of excluded methods, which is a broad definition. Genome editing wasn't available at the time. Obviously, this is the next wave biotech. But people felt very strongly. And in hindsight, given what the first generation of biotech has brought to food systems, I don't think that 
the organic community was wrong. There are opportunities in genome editing. And I think we'll see how it goes in the marketplace. I'm very fascinated by the Impossible Burger, by the way. So there's a genetic engineering component to this. That's why we taste the heme, the thing that makes red meat taste like it does. And I see a lot of my young students, anyhow, the students who are typically anti-GMO, only buy organic, thinking the Impossible Burger is the greatest thing. And I'm not sure how all that adds up, frankly. So maybe we're turning the tide in terms of people's understanding of the technology and what they consider to be acceptable. But I don't see organic leading on this uh, technology because of the history in the industry. But as the consumers evolve around genome editing, perhaps natural organic standards will as well. I think the Impossible Burger is such an interesting case study um, for that very reason. And I once, I asked the founder, Pat Brown, about that. I said, you know, how are you getting away with this? You know, you've got genetically modified soy and you've got genetically modified yeast producing heme and all these people that you wouldn't expect are just clamoring to get more and more burgers. And he said, well, in some cases, the animal activists are louder and younger than the anti-GMO people. <laughs> so maybe it's a generational thing, but I think part of it is giving people what they want. You know, I think the first generation of genetically modified, as you said, it, it didn't give consumers anything they wanted really with corn and soy. And so I think with the with the burger, people are getting what they want, which is to eat less meat and to kill less animals. And so, it, you know, we'll, we'll see. I think what you, your answer gives me hope because I do think that a lot of the breeding technologies could really help us with some of the changes that we're going to need to make to be more drought resistant and more heat and cold resistant and just some of the things that are happening with climate change. We just, we, we need to be able to react quickly to breed crops that can grow in, in different conditions. So hopefully we'll have that opportunity. Yeah. Well, time yeah. will tell. I last month was at the natural foods expo in Anaheim, California, mm -hmm. really the first time people were back and they were back in a big way at the convention center probably 60,000 people. And I tried a lot of the novel alternative proteins as I walked the floor. And I have to say, some of them were pretty terrible. <laughs> I think the jury's out on this. Yeah, exactly. So you also worked on the federal definition of sustainable agriculture. I don't know if that's any easier to give an elevator speech on that definition than organic, but um, how do you define sustainable agriculture? You know, I always say it's the three E's, environment, economics, and equity. And those of us in the sustainability biz always describe it as a three-legged stool. And you need to have equally long legs if the stool is going to be stable. And I think what you've seen in the last two or three years as we've had a national reckoning around racial injustice, social inequities, a recognition that when we talk in sustainability, we need to pay greater attention to equity. So I don't think we have a stable stool right now. The definition of sustainable agriculture that's in the 1990 Farm Bill that has stood the test of time is, I suppose, way longer than that, very verbose. But it was an interesting time. It was one of the few floor votes in the U.S. Senate. And this gigantic farm bill with many titles 
one of the few floor votes was over the definition of sustainable agriculture. I don't think it was really about the details, as I recall. It was more about whether we should have a definition at all. Huh. Interesting. And why why not have one? What did people say that we shouldn't have one? Them's fighting words back then. Now everybody talks sustainability and major corporations have chief sustainability officers and all of that. But, you know, I was a young thing then and times were different. It was also when you couldn't go on the floor of the Senate as a woman unless you were wearing a dress. Oh my gosh. Well, (laughs) some things have changed. (laughs) Not all, but yeah, exactly. So how do you compare and contrast sustainable ag with regenerative ag? A lot of people are, I've heard people say, we don't want to just be sustainable. You know, we actually want to regenerate in a way of kind of differentiating. But I think, you know, especially the equity piece, you know, there's just a lot of differences, but, you know, how how do you think about regenerative ag? Well, I think... Regenerative ag is all over the map in terms of how people are using that term and what they're doing. There was a great article in the fall of 2020 led by a Colorado State University professor. I wish I wrote it. And he and his team looked at 229 journal articles over time to see a common definition of regenerative and 25 practitioner organization websites. The websites all had definitions. They were all different. The 229 journal articles, the vast majority had no definition of regenerative. And one of the conclusions of the article, quite logically, is that without a clear definition, this is ripe for greenwashing. So I think as we move forward in this regenerative space, people are going to have to put their cards on the table about what they mean. Consumers eventually are going to demand it. There has been, according to the Hartman Group, I believe, among others, there's been a pretty rapid uptake in the general population on the term regenerative. But, you know, people need to pull back the curtain. So do you think there needs to be standards like organic standards or how will people know what they're getting? Yeah, I do think there needs to be uh, some sort of standard if it's going to be a label that's in the marketplace. Right now, we're hearing from USDA and hints from different political players there that they may have a climate smart label down the road. Again, I think there needs to be standards. Right now, globally, the organic label is the gold standard. And, you know, sometimes you hear people say, oh, it's not all that. I wish it had this. I wish I had that. You have some infighting within the organic industry, pointing fingers. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. It needs to be tougher. But the reality is it's the gold standard. Nobody has achieved what the organic community has with their labeling program. And it's not been an easy lift. So while we have excitement about regenerative, which as far as I can tell, is very soil-focused. And soils are important, absolutely. But there's going to have to be more work in that. And I'm not sure that consumers are going to be ready to pay more money for a single attribute product. I think it's going to have to be more than soil. But, you know, that's just Kathleen Merrigan talking here at my little university office. I don't really know. but, But I do know setting up a national labeling scheme and getting consensus among all the varied stakeholders is an uphill climb. 
Yeah. And I think even, you know, trying to do it at the consumer retail level where, you know, tell where you try to tell the story, this is regenerative. And I, I think it's confusing, you know, to consumers is like, well, how does that compare to organic? And, and I think with organic, you do know what you're getting. Like you said, you don't, you may not agree with everything, but at least, you know, that there are standards that have been met and regenerative. It just could be somebody's view, you know, that I think I'm growing this way. So I, I it, it is confusing. I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because I think some of the practices, you know, are really good and protecting the soil is really good. But how do you really know, you know, what people have done? Yeah. And it's going to be really different what you do for soil in the Midwest, where a lot of, there's a lot of excitement about emerging carbon markets and potential payments to farmers and where someone might be farming in Arizona, where I live, where it's really rangeland health and looking at the broader array of ecosystem services, because you're not going to get that same carbon drawdown that you would get in Midwestern soils. So it's that complexity when you're trying to put together a standard that's not localized, but that's what you need to do if you really want to claim market share ultimately. Yeah. And get any price premium at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you've also done some work around local. So how do you define local and what are this a program, some of the programs that you've worked at around looking at um, local farms? I've worked on local most of my career and when I was at USDA, I launched an effort called Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food, an initiative to support local and regional agriculture. I think the pandemic and all of the supply chain disruptions gave people a new appreciation for local and regional agriculture. And I see USDA putting more money in that bucket um, but local, I wasn't ready to define. You know, some people think of local in terms of it's within a state, Vermont grown and processed food. But you know, I grew up five minutes from the Vermont border and I didn't get to Boston, Massachusetts until I was in high school. So I affiliate with Vermont. So having Vermont be the definition didn't make sense from where I grew up, right? Some people like to have a radius of certain miles, 400 miles, 50 miles. Some people like to think about it in a food shed way, sort of a parallel to a watershed, having a food shed. So I've seen a lot of definitions over time. I was involved in the early on efforts uh, in, in making a definition. Also recognizing that as local and regional food systems build up, you can start buying closer and closer to home. So we resisted defining local, at least when I was at USDA, and I think that's probably where we want to mm -hmm. be. How do you think vertical farms fit in and to the growing local or fit into any of the growing systems and how people talk about produce? Yeah. Well, you know, we know quite clearly that the world is rapidly urbanizing and vertical farms and anything that you can get in that urban and peri-urban space to me is exciting because it brings people closer to where their food is grown. That doesn't mean we can go without the big plains and Midwest and all the different growing regions in this country. I'm not naive to think that we are going to feed ourselves in 
urban agriculture and peri-urban agriculture. But just like a farmer's market in a city, people who are engaged in those enterprises near population centers are ambassadors for American agriculture and help connect people with how food is grown. Same reason I love school gardening curriculum. Schools getting involved in having kids get their hands in the soil and appreciate what it takes to produce a tomato or a pepper. I think that's healthy and it helps connect urban and rural populations in very positive ways. So my last question, what are the three things you want people to know about organic production or certification or just things about organic farming that people may not know? Trust the organic label. You know, there's always a bad apple or two, and people love to make those headline stories, but the vast majority of thousands of farmers in this country that are organic are doing right by the soil, right by the environment, right by their local communities, trust the organic label. Yet, we have an agenda that we want to pursue. The Sweetie Center came out with a report last June called Let me see. The critical to-do list for organic agriculture, 46 recommendations for the president. Yikes. 46 (laughs) because Joe Biden is the 46th president. Not because I couldn't have thought of 146, (laughs) but it's uh, available on our website to download. And I would really appreciate people looking at it. It's full of all kinds of ideas, and I want to try to build consensus around them. For example, getting our USDA nutrition programs to include organic as thing that is purchased for children, which makes a lot of sense to me. Third thing about organic, there's always, for me, the need to say, there's nothing that I've done in my career and nothing I want to do as long as I'm kicking that pits farmers against farmers. So always appreciate your farmer, your rancher, your grower out there, whether they're organic or not. I've never been courageous enough to be a producer myself. I know what it takes. You have to be uh, risk averse. You have to be visionary and you have to work a lot harder than I do from an office. So as much as I'm a champion of organic, I'm a champion of agriculture. Well, I completely agree with that. That's a great place for us to end. Thank you so much for your time today. It was great talking to you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. The International Fresh Produce Association is bringing new technology to solve industry's big challenges through the new Fresh Field Catalyst Accelerator. The six-month immersive program works with technology companies outside of produce and floral to experience the challenges in our industry and develop innovative solutions for a healthier world. Applications are due April 4th. Find out more at freshproduce.com. You've been listening to Fresh Takes on Tech, a podcast from the International Fresh Produce Association. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us keep delivering the latest on produce technology. Thank you for listening. Until next time.